0: If you're a parent or if you have had any kind of responsibility for a child for any length of time, uh, you've likely come across the questions that children ask, right? Kids are really good question askers as they are assessing the world around them. I, I know uh, for us in our family, the, the car rides are the best time for questions. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they're... They're not running around the house and they're not distracted. We're all kind of in close proximity. But it seems like every time we're in the car, I have to become some kind of scientist or philosopher or something as they start asking questions about the world that they live in. Questions like, why are there mosquitoes that give people malaria? Why do germs make people sick? Questions like, I saw news of a bad flood that wiped out a whole town. Why are there floods and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes? Did you ever get asked questions like that? Why are there famines where people starve to death? Why do people get sick and they don't get better? Why why do people do bad things towards other people? At least when we're kids, we're honest with asking the questions, right? You know, when we're adults, we internalize them, but maybe we're not so open to ask the questions, but I would guarantee that for most, if not all of us, we have asked those questions inside. Why? And if you've wrestled with some of those questions, you know, the tough thing is we don't always get those, the answers that we're looking for. Sadly, some people have become agnostics. And an agnostic is someone that says there might be a higher power, we just can't know Him. Or they've taken a step further and they've become an atheist. And they say, well, if all these bad things are happening, there can't be a good God. He doesn't exist at all. How can an all-powerful God allow the terrible suffering That is in the world. And since none of us are exempt from suffering and death, it's important that we understand what the scriptures teach about this very issue. Philosophers, theologians, pastors, and others have written scores of books on the subject, but I find it super comforting that God has written for us a good response to all of these questions. We really only have to look one place. That's at the book of Job. If you know anything about Job, it's the oldest book in the Bible. It happens, Job's life happens sometime during the life of Abraham and the patriarchs. And we know Job's story. A man that faced terrible suffering. And it was permitted or allowed to happen upon him by God himself. And so for the bulk of the book, as Job is reconciling all of the major questions and struggles that he's facing in life, uh, some friends visit, and they offer friendly advice, but it's not godly counsel. Um, And so for 37 chapters, there's a back and forth with questions. Why, why, why? And in Job 38 through Job 42, God in his providence steps in. And it's like he reaches out with his hand from heaven and puts it on Job's mouth. And he says, hush. And now God speaks. And if you've read the book of Job before and you've gotten, gotten to chapter 38, what you come to find is that God asks 77 questions to Job. In relation to everything that Job has been processing about the problem of pain and suffering. And it's all summarized by this Job, who are you to question me? And God doesn't say it in a flippant, sarcastic way. He doesn't say it in an unloving way. He doesn't say it in a way that's communicating, Job, I know that you have these questions, but listen. It doesn't matter. No, Job is taking or God is taking Job through the process of helping him to see that there are certain things that only belong to the sovereign God of creation. Now God will show his splendor, he will show his power. But sometimes in life, there are just things that we're not meant to know. Can I say that again? Sometimes in life, there are certain things that we're just not meant to know. Does that mean that we stop asking questions? No. Keep asking questions. Keep searching. Keep seeking. But look to God for the answers. Look to His Word for the truth. Our text this morning gives part of the biblical perspective that we need to persevere in the midst of suffering. Because I think that's sometimes what we're looking for in our questions. It's not so much the why, but it's how am I going to get through this? How am I going to face a situation that may come up much like what I'm seeing in the world? How am I going to make it through the problem of suffering and pain that is visited upon not only people outside of my sphere, but what if problem, the problem of pain and suffering visits me? How will I make it? And so Paul, very helpfully and practically, uh, brings us to consider some things that maybe we don't always consider in the place that suffering has and the promise of what is to come. We often find that the answer God gives is not the answer that we're looking for as well. But the answer that God gives is more beneficial. It's what we need, not necessarily what we want. The Lord will often draw our attention away from circumstances. He'll often draw our attention away from the details of whatever is in front of us. And God will often draw our attention to His goodness and ultimately to the final destination that we have with Him. Church, we need to remember we're just transient beings on this globe spinning in the universe. Our life is like a vapor, here one minute and gone the next. There has to be a greater purpose. There has to be more. And thankfully, there is. Our passage this morning doesn't answer all the specific questions, but what it does do is give us a very wide perspective of God's plan for redemption. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And as we look at these verses this morning, I I want you to consider this wide plan of redemption. From Paul's perspective, as he writes to the church in Rome, and if you remember in Romans 8, we've been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the promise that God has given us, the pledge of Himself indwelling us as we walk with Him, and that the Spirit gives us courage and strength, and, and He allows us to live for God. Uh, as we live in a fallen world. The Spirit gives us victory as we rely on Him to help us to overcome our sinful flesh. Last week, we looked at the importance of the indwelling Spirit in regards to the Spirit being the pledge that helps us to overcome and that we enjoy sonship with the Father as the Spirit Fills us, and we are adopted as children of God. And verse 17 ended that we, were, we are going to be heirs. Heirs of God and fellow, fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him. That's a conditional statement. Paul implies that if we are in the Spirit, because we are in Christ, we will suffer. What? That doesn't seem like a, a positive way of sharing Christ with someone, right? Hey, come to Jesus so you can suffer. Well, it's not necessarily why we come, right? We come for purpose and healing and forgiveness and restoration. But because we are transient here, this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers because our citizenship is in heaven. Now the kingdom has switched. We are no longer citizens of the kingdom of death. We are citizens of the kingdom of the beloved son. And because of that, we suffer. Because everything that we know now to be true in Christ is turned upside down in this fallen world. And when Paul says we are heirs, we are heirs since we suffer with him. And if we suffer with him, we will be glorified, we will be changed, we will be Gloriously, divinely transformed as God gives us a complete eradication of the old sin nature and a new body in Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in verse 18 with this this connection of suffering. Because he introduces suffering as the, the journey of being glorified to the church in Rome. He says in verse 18, connecting this thought of suffering, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so verse 18 acts as an explanation of verse 17. Suffering is introduced. And, and for us, when we hear suffering, we, we don't, we're not excited about it. I mean, you have to be a super... Oh, I want to be careful while I say this, but you have to be a super strange person to look forward to suffering. You know, in the sense of, hey, I can't wait, bring it on. But as suffering is introduced into the mindset of what it means to follow Jesus, you need to understand that it's critical to the plan and purpose of God. Because if there is no suffering in this world, the the thought is, are you living for Christ? I mean, think about that. If there is no suffering in your life, are you living for Jesus? Or are you still a citizen of the kingdom of darkness? Because there is going to be a polarization. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be trouble for living for the Lord. And then in a very practical way, if you follow the theme and thread of what Paul writes in Romans 8 and when we get to the end of the chapter about all the things that, that come into a person's life and Paul says, do these things separate us from the love of Christ? Does this separate us from the love of Christ? Does that separate us from the love of Christ? And you go through that process, what you begin to understand that there is specific suffering for Jesus as a result of living for Him. And then there's this, the general suffering of living in a fallen world where sin is all around us. And to some extent, we all suffer as a result of living in this creation that has been marred by the fall of Adam. And when Paul says, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul knows what he's talking about. He absolutely knows what he's talking about. On our way to receive the inheritance of God, as God's children, we're going to suffer. And when we come to God for salvation... We come with the expectation of protection and blessing and peace. And yet there is this promise that we will suffer. And when Paul says, I consider, some of the other translations that you have may say he reckons it. And to reckon or to consider something said in another way is to say, I am firmly convinced. Paul's writing these words about what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, I am firmly convinced. So, Paul knows what he's talking about. And if you want to put your finger in the Bible in Romans 8 and, and turn with me to Rome, uh, 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul says that suffering is a part of the Christian life, this is what Paul wrote about his life in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, as Paul is writing about himself, Uh, He's writing to the church in Corinth about his experience. And he says in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas was the king, was guarding the city of the the Democenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary, though, to, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so let's just stop here for a second. Does Paul know what he's talking about when he says that suffering is a part of the Christian life? Absolutely. This was his experience as he lived for Jesus. He started where he came from. He was a Jewish person. He, he was the Jew of Jews. I mean, he came from the pedigree, the lineage, the heritage. He came from what it meant to follow God. It was transformed through following Christ. And it led him to intense trouble throughout his time on earth. And Paul says at the end of chapter 11, if I boast, I boast in what pertains to my weakness. Because that's what really suffering is all about, right? It's the reminder that we are weak. We are. It's a reminder that we are frail. And all of us are at the edge of really losing it all. And when it comes to following Jesus in a fallen world, Suffering reminds us that we're not home. And so Paul says, listen, I look at everything and I'm not complaining about it. I'm boasting in it because when I boast in it, God is glorified. So what is Paul boasting in? Well, if you follow chapter 12, and if you were here, Rod, was it last Sunday we looked at chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians about Paul, the visions of heaven? It was either last week or the week before. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, as Paul's building on this argument of suffering, you read in chapter 12 that at some point in Paul's life, he was caught up into the third heaven. Paul understood practically and theologically that suffering is temporary. God showed this man that there is more to come. And so what does Paul say as a result of his time of suffering, and the revelation of the glory to come. In chapter 12, further on, he quotes from Jesus in verse 9 My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul certainly understood suffering. Church, you need to know that suffering is coming. Many of you do know that. And you know it in a way of it's not it is coming, but it has come. But you also need to know that Jesus shows Himself strong on your behalf in the midst of suffering. His grace is sufficient. There is never a moment. There is n- never a circumstance. There will be nothing that you will ever face in life that God's grace won't be sufficient to help you with. Did you ever hear a story and think, I have no idea how they made it through that? Did you ever face something in your own life and look back on it and think, I don't know. How I made it through that. It's because of God's grace. Because it's in our weakness that God's power is perfected. And What Paul does in verse 18 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You need to... Kind of picture in your mind with me this scales with two pans. You know what I'm talking about, right? Scales that have pans and, and, you, and you put weight on them and you're trying to find equilibrium. You're trying to find balance as you weigh things out. And so with this, one pan has sufferings. These sufferings are due to sin. The word here that Paul uses for sufferings includes suffering for any reason. Sin brings broken Brokenness and destruction. Sin tears down and brings chaos. And these present sufferings in the moment seem like that the pan with all of the suffering is weighed down on the ground and that's all there is. Right? You know what it's like to go through a season of suffering. It seems like it consumes you and that's all that there is. Even if you've suffered for Jesus, the weight of sin is pressing down in its immense weight upon you. And so Paul says, Imagine with us these present sufferings. And then he says in verse 18, They are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. So it doesn't balance out. Glory doesn't balance with suffering. Suffering's down here. You throw some glory on the pan. It tips the whole other way. That's what Paul's point is. It's not even a worthy comparison. It's not even worth trying to put both on the scales. Because when you try to compare suffering with what is to come, there is no equal. And for us as people of faith who have been given a new heart and a new spirit, and we are set on this pilgrimage heading home, Paul and the apostles and Jesus Himself are always pointing our eyes to what is to come. Because this isn't it. And I praise God that this isn't it. The glory that we will experience at our glorification when we are changed. When we leave this earth, the earth suit, the sin nature, the trappings of this world are set off. And we go to join God and we know in that future time when we are with the Lord, He will give us a new body that is glorified like His sons. And we will be perfect. And we will see the Lord for who He is. And we will be like Him. Not that we're going to become God, but we are like Him in that we are sinless. This pan of glory in Paul's mind is not worthy to be compared. It's not even a fair comparison. The weight of the coming glory is settled firm on the ground. It's an act of faith to believe this. That God has a promise for us that He will change us and that we will be with Him. Listen, God has clearly said a lot of things about your future And I could spend the rest of the day reading Bible verses that tell us that. But I will say this, as you read the Scriptures and you come across promises about what your future looks like, mark those down. Because you're going to need reminded. You're going to need encouraged. Because suffering is going to visit you. And you need to know that God is victorious over it and He has a plan for you. Our present sufferings, be they ever so many and severe, fade into significance when compared to our future glory. In verses 19-22, through we, we catch a glimpse of the anticipation of this future glory when Paul writes, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so here, what Paul says is not only is there a future glory, but there's an expectation of all of creation wanting to see what is to come. Do you catch that in the language that is used? In verse 19, there's an anxious longing. The creation waits eagerly. In fact, the the Greek behind this term carries with it the idea of an outstretched neck. That creation is at on its tippy toes, watching and waiting for the time when we, the redeemed, will be revealed as God's children. It's a crazy thought to me. Because we're going to walk out these doors and we're going to look outside and we're going to see creation. And there are times and moments, man, it looks really good but it's just a shadow of what's to come. Creation is personified as it leans forward, eagerly waiting for God to reveal the sons of God. And we talked about that phrase sons of God last week when we introduced the idea of adoption. Sons of God is a reference to every child of God, son and daughter. The word reveal in the Greek carries the idea of removing a covering. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So think with me. Have you ever seen, have you ever been invited to uh, some kind of art exhibit or uh, maybe you've seen this on TV. Maybe, you know, it's uh, a car company that has a new car out, and, and, and they bring it out, and they want to unveil the car, and they have this big fabric over it, right? And everyone is eagerly anticipating, okay, what's under it? We want to see what it is. And then, you know, with all the, the triumph of music and lights and color and all this kind of thing, they go, and they reveal what's underneath. That's what it's going to be like for the creation at the end of time when God's children show up with the king. The creation is going to be like, oh my, we are so glad you're here. Because until then, everything has been in chaos. Creation anxiously waits With outstretched necks as it awaits for us to be revealed. Now listen, if you're in Christ right now, you are a child of God. But in a way that we're not going to understand until that comes, our adoption, our revealing as the sons of God is, is not complete until we join Jesus in the coming kingdom. It's then that the children of God will be on display in full glory to the creation in verse 20, we read, for the creation was subjected to futility. This word futility means frustration. The creation that is all around us is not, even on its best day, what it was meant to be. God's creation will never Reach the perfection that he originally intended it to achieve until Jesus returns, even creation like this. Can you put the clicker on there? Oh, oh wait even you know have you ever seen? A picture painted by God like this? And it, it gets your attention. If you've ever seen it up front, personal, it takes your breath away. Or to look up in the night sky and see everything that God has painted on the canvas of the sky. Or if you're like us and you like scenes like this, that God made this, and this is certainly good. And it's awesome to enjoy. Or you look at God's creation that He made like, I don't know if it's a brown bear, grizzly bear, it's a bear. To me, it's a bear. Or the lion. For your goat friends out there, I, I chose this one for you. Now remember, this is my list. <laughs> the, the most ferocious beast of them all. <laughs> Listen, in all of that and so much more, and I, I've talked to some of you, I, I, I've heard how you have been moved by God's handiwork in creation. You agree with the psalmists. You You declare the glory of God in what you see. And what Paul says is that that is just a shadow of what is to come. Creation was subjected to futility. There is no more violence between animals or no more bear attacks Uh, There's no more floods. There's no more hurricanes. There's no more droughts, tornadoes, avalanches, snowstorms. The creation, as Paul says, will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It will be set free. Now Paul says... In verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The earth groans like a woman in labor. That's the imagery that Paul paints. Right now, the creation is groaning like a woman getting ready to have a baby. Now, many of you have baby pictures like this. And you like showing them around. This is Levi. Levi, remember when you were that small? And this is Anna. Right? We, we love showing pictures like this. None of us show the pictures of the wife who is groaning in labor to have the baby, though. And if you do, we should talk Later. But the creation one day will be delivered. And it will be beautiful. And it will be something that you've never experienced. Isaiah gives us a foretaste in Isaiah chapter 11 when he says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." There's a day coming when creation will change. And it'll change when the sons of God are revealed in their full splendor and glory. And that happens at the return of Jesus for the beginning of His thousand-year reign on this earth. We're a part of this, right? We share as co-heirs As Paul said in verse 17 of chapter 8, we share as fellow heirs with Christ in what is to come. In verses 23 through 25, Paul says, and not only this, I mean, gosh, if that wasn't enough, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There's a lot going on here that we want to look at. But what Paul begins with is stating is that the, only the saints, only the redeemed, only the children of God have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Now this idea of first fruits, if you go back into the Old Testament, I think it's in Deuteronomy, but the idea of first fruits was the first that you would offer God of how He has blessed you. It was a pledge to Him. It was saying to Him, God, what I'm giving you out of the first fruits of what I have is signifying that no matter what else I have... It all belongs to you. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a sense of the first fruits. It's only to the redeemed. And it's given as a pledge. And we we know that in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit, we are sealed with the Spirit as a pledge of the inheritance of what is to come. God, by an act of His grace, indwelt us. And won't leave us and assures us that the process of our salvation from beginning to end will be complete. We have received so much from the Lord at the moment of our salvation, but the promise of verse 23 is that there is more to come. I mean, think about it. Right now, only right now, if everything was to stop right now, is what God has given you enough? You bet it is. It's amazing we could just sit for hours talking about how God has blessed us and Paul says in verse 23 and yet there is still more to come Paul hints to that in Philippians chapter 3 when he says for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. We're going to be gloriously transformed. Listen, if you woke up this morning and you had to take ibuprofen for something stupid that you did yesterday, you won't need ibuprofen in the future age. We are waiting for the public display of our standing as children of God. As of right now, our bodies are still subject to death. But one day, our souls will go to be with the Lord and He will gloriously transform the outside of us to agree with the glorification of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, to that great day we look forward with hope. We look forward with an attitude of hope. It's the attitude of hope that implies there is more in store for us than anything that we have already. We need to notice something in verse 24 though about hope. Paul writes, for in hope we have been saved. Now it's not hope that saves us. Right? It's not wishful thinking. It's not, well, I'm guessing it'll work out. Now, the hope that Paul's talking about is hope that is wrapped up with the message of God's salvation. And with salvation comes a promise that there is more to follow. Christian hope is the anchor for the soul. We wait with perseverance to our final deliverance. Now, if we saw it, that wouldn't be hope. If we saw everything, if, if Jesus said, okay, before you believe, let me just take you down this door and show you everything that is to come, that wouldn't be hope. And there would be no perseverance. There would be no longing and anticipation of what is to become as the sons of God are revealed. And so we wait with perseverance to our final deliverance because suffering is going to hit us. But there's a promise that there is more to what we experience. And so we eagerly wait. Practically, this means that none of us have arrived. There's more to come. And so we all wait. In so doing, we receive patient endurance, weathering the storms of this life for what is promised to come. Now, the promise of these verses is that trials are coming. And the trials hurt. God's not minimizing the trials. He's not saying that they're not a big deal. He's not saying that they don't bring suffering and tears and struggle and pain. But what He is saying is that those sufferings do not compare. It's not even worthy to be compared to what is to come. And all of creation waits for the time when we will be glorified as we wait with the expectant hope of the sure promise that we are being gloriously transformed. Do you get that? The focus of the hope that is to come in this passage is our change. Not creation's change, but that God will change us that we are not finished in God's refining now, does this mean that we're going to get all the answers to all the questions that we ask? No. It doesn't mean that. But it also does mean that God provides a better answer. See, when I, when I catch a glimpse of what is to come in the, in the eyes of Scripture, when I, when I see what God has said about the promise of what is to come, the questions that I have, they, they seem pointless to ask because God catches my attention somewhere else to something better. And it's the promise that He brings full redemption to His creation. And church, we want to celebrate that together. That God has certainly certainly been good to us in our lives. And so I pray that if you're struggling this morning, if the suffering pan seems to be outweighing the other side of it that you would understand that God has a grand purpose for what He's doing. There are no mistakes. He he has us on a course. And everything all around us is waiting for the time when we will be changed. But until that day comes, let's praise God, right? Let's praise Him. Because He is certainly good. Even even in the darkest day god's light still shines so i want to pray for you and pray for us that god would show himself strong on our behalf let's pray